The idea behind a drill is not just so people are ready, but to also uncover any sort of gaps or glitches that an organization might have. And then that gives you the chance to put corrective actions in place, you know, in a safe environment and at the pace you would like to. You're listening to the Employee Safety Podcast from Alert Media, a podcast for professionals responsible for the safety and well-being of their employees. Each episode features an interview with a leader in employee safety to discuss how to protect your employees from a wide array of threats, from severe weather to a global pandemic. Let's get into the show. Hello, and welcome to the Employee Safety Podcast, where we discuss insights and ideas for how to protect your most valuable asset, your people. I'm your host, Peter Steinfeld, and I'm joined today by Joanne Dankert, Senior Consultant at the National Safety Council, also known as the NSC. Joanne, how are you today? I'm doing well, Peter. How are you? Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much for being here. It's really great to have you on the show. And our focus today is on the National Safety Council's tips for emergency preparedness. But before we begin, just to give some context, can you tell our listeners about your background and your role at the National Safety Council? Sure. I'm a senior safety consultant with the National Safety Council. I've been here for about 15 years or so. My background as a safety practitioner for the past 30 years has been in lots of different industries, uh, such as food, pharmaceuticals, electronics, and distribution. I'm also a certified safety professional. Wonderful. Well, just to set the context for our conversation a bit, National Preparedness Month is recognized by FEMA each September to promote family, business, and community disaster planning. And since we're fast approaching that and National Preparedness Month kicks off next week, we thought our listeners would find value in hearing some tips and guidance from the National Safety Council. So to get started, can you first tell us the key priorities and goals of the NSC? Sure. So as the National Safety Council, we're one of the leading advocates, if you will, around safety and health, whether we're talking about workplace on the road or in the community. Uh, We've been around since 1913. Occupational safety is our heritage. In 1954, the Congress chartered us under the Green Cross. So many people, if they are familiar with the Red Cross, they were chartered at the same time for emergency preparedness as well. We've stuck mostly to occupational safety on the roads and then first aid CPR and AEDs. Currently, we have a work to zero program, which is looking at how technology can help in the workplace as far as reducing injuries and saving lives. We're also a player in distracted driving, and we look on our advocacy side of the house for work in fit for duty, and that encompasses uh, fatigue in the workplace as well as medication use, whether that medication is over-the-counter, prescriptions, or what's now termed as recreational use, right? We've had a change. Mm. Each state sort of looks at those types of things. And so how an employee comes to work and how they're prepared to do their jobs is important and sometimes leads to injuries and unfortunately fatalities. So we want to save lives from the workplace to any place. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about those signs you see when you go to a manufacturing facility or an industrial area where it says, we've had this many days since the last accident. 
Is that something that sprung out of the NSC or was that just something that popped up at someone's office at some point? I think perhaps a best practice maybe that that we've probably shared over the course of time. And it's kind of a nice way to recognize, uh, you know, good work that employees and employers are doing on their job sites. And so you're right, Peter, we we see that a lot. Sometimes it's a, even a stoplight, right? Green, we haven't had an injury or yellow. Maybe we had some sort of minor injury, like a first aid type of thing. So very common. Yes. Okay. Well, it's fascinating. I didn't know the history of the organization went back to pre-World War One, So that's that's amazing. In your experience, what are the most common preparedness challenges that businesses face that relate to employee safety and well-being overall? Well, I think employees, employers get overwhelmed with preparing for the multitude of potential injuries that can take, emergencies, I should say, that can take place at their facility or on their job site. You know, you have to prepare for fire or medical or depending on what area of the country are, various weather-related things, earthquakes, workplace violence, and active shooter. Unfortunately, we see more and more chemical spills and leaks. But sometimes we're also talking about an integrated plan. So it can have to do with maybe data breaches, which we're all, I think, familiar with uh, various uh, situations that we've seen in the news in uh, recent weeks. And so it can be somewhat overwhelming, I think, to think, oh, I have to have a plan for each one of those. And so they might have the basics, but sometimes can get surprised or overwhelmed. Interesting. So as you assess an organization's emergency preparedness plan, how do you analyze the plan's strengths and weaknesses, taking into consideration what you just said? Well, we like to do what we would consider to be a risk assessment of sorts. So have an understanding of what types of hazards might be on that job site or in that facility, because the needs for a manufacturing facility would be different from retail, right? In retail, you're dealing with customers and a little less influence over customers where in manufacturing, those employees, you know, tend to work for you and you can guide them. And so the idea here is for us to look at at least making sure that those basic things are covered. If you have a medical emergency, what would you do? If there's a fire, how how would you alert people to that? Or where would you uh, go to shelter in place if you've had some sort of weather type situation or uh, things like active shooter, you know, the run hide fight mechanism. If you've got chemicals on site, what sort of uh, materials do you have for chemical spill cleanup? And how are your employees trained? And what personal protective equipment do you have? So what we're trying to do is gauge if the plan is what we would consider to be right-sized. Right? It doesn't overly complicated. And in most urban settings, we can always go to 911 and get the professionals to come and help us on site. We're looking for the employer to be able to mitigate it until emergency responders can assist. So it seems like for most organizations, it's a common puzzle that you just have to rearrange to fit what's most important to you based on the risk that you face, but it's always generally speaking the same things. There's definitely some commonalities. There's no doubt about it. But for example, say food manufacturing, you might use ammonia for refrigeration, right? That's not very common and it's also mm. very deadly. So you want to know that they have a plan in place. What would you do if you have an ammonia leak? How would you protect employees? 
where would the proper shelter in place spot be or which way is the wind blowing and who do we need to tell that the chlorine cloud is moving type of a thing. So there is, a, I think, a certain amount of specification, you know, based on specific hazards you might have. As you think about your consulting over the years, do you think there's a kind of a common theme of, wow, I can't believe these people are not thinking of these things as risks that just pop up over and over? <laughs> yeah, I think there's some of that, you know, our friends at OSHA have been here for 50 years now. And so some of these things that we're talking about are covered from a regulatory perspective, either through OSHA, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Transportation, you know, those three are kind of the big three. I do think smaller employers are strapped for resources and Mm. you can sometimes have no issue, no problem, right? Oh, we've never had that happen. That must not be a concern. So I think they get caught off guard. Mm, That's interesting. No issue, no problem. That's a a trap that we can often fall into. So that's something good to think about. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, many of our audience members are safety leaders at their organizations and are just constantly looking for ways to improve their emergency preparedness or crisis management plans in general. So I'd like to give you the floor now so you can offer some suggestions and advice. With that in mind, what are the most important lessons that our listeners can take back to their organizations to just overall strengthen their preparedness and response plans? Well, I think most locations, right, whether you're a construction site, retail, manufacturing, you can do that risk assessment yourself. You know, it's the simple question, what can go wrong? So am I ready for the common things like you mentioned, uh, Peter, medical emergencies? How would we respond to a fire uh, if we need to evacuate or, or even if one of our neighbors, a neighboring business had a situation, do we stay inside because of something that's going on on their particular site. I think, as you mentioned earlier, the ability to have a physical drill, I kind of look at that like muscle memory. So, you know, the physicality of practicing where, how do I get out of a building? Where do I muster so that people can take headcount and we know is pretty important. We've seen in this last year because of COVID, less physical practice, right? We understand the concept of physical distancing, but I, I think we can still accomplish that, um, you know, through a meeting and just talking through with employees what to do if we have a tornado or, you know, if you're in that part of the country where there's an earthquake or medical emergency or fire, you know, whether you use that as a five minute a safety talk or a safety meeting. I think that idea of, of kind of micro drills quite frequently throughout the year are, are very valuable because like you said, it's all about muscle memory and it's not like every drill you do is going to actually happen in reality. But by going through the drills, when whatever does happen, you're much more likely not to freeze like a deer in the headlights because you've become comfortable responding. Absolutely. You know, what I always say is when the fire alarm rings, nobody runs to the wall and looks at the evacuation map, right? We we all want to sort of have that kind of embedded in our memory and, you know, more than one way to exit the building or location. So, so you're absolutely right. The ability to talk about it, whether you take the time to physically drill, at least walk people through it. Lots of organizations use tabletop drills for more extensive situations like a chemical spill or a leak. You you know, you can't take the time per se to run a two-hour drill, but you could have people in a conference room around a table and various information comes and the decision makers are there, right? Your leaders within your organization and they get a chance to think on their feet deal with various situations 
And again, like you said, just practice to know. The idea behind a drill is not just so people are ready, but to also uncover any sort of gaps or glitches that an organization might have. And then that gives you the chance to put corrective actions in place, you know, in a safe environment and at the pace you would like to. You know, maybe you decide, hey, we can't hear our fire alarm in all areas on the job site and you have to, you know, have capital in order to expand that system. You know, that takes a little bit of time, but at least it can be part of the planning that an organization does. You know, you you mentioned, if, if you don't mind me interrupting, you said something earlier that was pretty interesting, which is to include your neighbors. You know, how much would you recommend as you think about these drills and these tabletop exercises to involve not just maybe local law enforcement and, and first responders, but also the people in the buildings you know, around your area. Oh, it's an excellent idea, Peter, because sometimes you might want to use their location as a sheltering location or vice versa, right? If something happens on their job site, or if you had a catastrophic failure, maybe you're going there to be able to call out for emergency assistance or things like that. So there's no doubt that uh, your neighbors can you know, be helpful in the, you know, reciprocating those types of things back and forth. We often see that, especially, you know, in industrial parks where you have lots of smaller businesses that can help each other. So it's an excellent point and a, and a great idea to not just make friends with your neighbor, but to, to understand the hazards that they have. And, and what could cause problems for you and vice versa. Yeah, I remember years ago, I was working for an organization where our entire building was shut down. This is like a 30-story building because the basement flooded and that's where all the power equipment was and everything. And it was two months before they got our building up and running again. But fortunately, we had a neighboring building and a kind of a sister company that allowed us to come over and take over all their conference rooms and use them to conduct business as usual. They, they let us set up networking, everything. And that would have been something really hard to do if we hadn't planned in advance. Sure. Well, and, and that's the, you know, a great example of you could even have a table, tabletop drill that says, well, what happens if water gets into this area? You, you know, mm -hmm. a pipe burst, a, a forklift operator hits a sprinkler line, right? Those are kind of common things that can sometimes happen. I think another thing related to drills is just exploring some of the software options that we have to do broadcast messaging. We see this now on college campuses. Unfortunately, it might be more along the lines of active shooter, but lots of larger organizations, you know, like the example you mentioned, could send out a broadcast message either via email or text message about, a, you know, a situation that's going on and that you need to evacuate or to avoid a certain area of a job site or a facility because of an emergency type situation. And then there's also this concept of an integrated contingency plan. You know, that it not just looks at the safety and health piece, but what if we lose power or there's a data breach? Sometimes others within your organization, you know, like your chief information officer or accounting or procurement might be involved. And so there's, I think, some power into, you know, having these drills where multiple groups within the organization sort of work together to solve the, the issues that could go on. And you can practice how does that work and what information and how do we communicate? And it can be you know helpful in an emergency situation. Seeing that there is tremendous amounts of confusion during emergencies because things aren't going as normal, how important do you think communication is overall? Well, I think we could all agree that communication is key and multiple methods. You know, it's common in many manufacturing sites to have a 
you know, public address system, a PA system. People have often radios. A common practice that I see is an emergency channel. So you might have one channel that's, you know, for maintenance calls or production calls or that type of a thing. You know, what I see in an office setting is more along those lines of what I just described is the ability to have a a broadcast message to be able to communicate or to communicate in more than one vein. You know, I know folks don't often like to give up their cell phone numbers, but, you know, that sort of group text that can get something out in a, a short amount of time or allow people to communicate quickly is, is important. You know, sometimes when it's catastrophic, right? The tornado comes through. Sometimes you lose cell phone coverage or the repeater for your radio systems. And seeking that alternative method is critical. If not to fight the fire, it might be to just get emergency response moving in your direction and, and help with medical type situations. So Peter, I think another great thing for organizations to take a look at is just how communication happens internally with leadership. You know, you had mentioned about butting up kind of with local police and fire, but during an emergency, sometimes leaders within our organization, you know, because they lead the organization, sometimes feel the pressure to lead the emergency as well. And often they don't have the same type of training that others within their organization have. So it's super important for the emergency response teams to communicate with leadership, to be able to keep them updated on what's going on as far as how they're progressing and, you know, working on that particular emergency, and but also making sure that leaders can stay in a safe place and they have the information that they need in order to either communicate with police and fire or communicate with others within their organization. And I think the last piece to sort of just mention is that when the pros come on site, our police and fire, they also use an incident command system. And so whatever work that we're doing, you know, to sort of stem the tide of the emergency now gets turned over to the experts and they'll use their own incident command system to communicate among themselves and then to communicate with the organization. So our emergency responders would just sort of step back then and let the pros take over in that particular situation. And as you think about the concept of duty of care, which traditionally applied to people when they were actually on facility, now that's changed with COVID with a lot of people working from home. So what are some of the things that organizations can do to help keep their people safe when they're working, but not at a company facility? Well, you know, we can think about being safe at home. You know, it's sort of like things that I learn at work. They can apply at home as well. I think the concept of, you know, having an evacuation plan at home, I know that sounds kind of goofy or odd, but, you know, if something happened, where where would we meet? Would we meet at the oak tree at the neighbors across the street? Or would we, would we all call, you know, Aunt Susie, you know, if somehow we got separated? So, so having that sort of communication plan or exit plan is super important. You know, if you're, if you've learned first aid CPR at work, it definitely helps you know, at home, whether, you know, it's at the little league game or at a church dinner or something like that. So thinking about, you know, first aid CPR training, maybe for somebody in your family, not not just thinking about using it at work. First aid kits at home and in your car for small things. I know we all can call 911, but, you know, sometimes having something handy there, you know, little things like how do you store important documents? 
you know, birth certificates, passports? Do you, do you have it in a fireproof box that will last for a couple of hours? You know, that kind of organization ahead of time can save some heartache on the back end of trying to recreate important documents or even memories for that perspective. And then I think the last thing to speak about would be utility shutoffs. You know, we don't tend to be able to shut the water off to our homes or electricity, but having the emergency number for, you know, your gas company, your water company, your electric company can be also helpful to, if something happens, uh, you know, trees down and hits the electric or whatever, right? The ability to be able to report that uh, gets people to a safe area uh, so they don't get zapped. Well, we certainly experienced that here in Texas back in, what was it, January or February, where we had the freeze and lots of people had water just running all over their house when pipes burst. So just knowing something as simple as where to turn the water off before that becomes a problem can really just help out tremendously. Absolutely. It saves a lot of damage and cleanup in the long run. So as people start thinking about National Preparedness Month in September, do you have any resources or websites that you would recommend for our listeners that could help them out? Oh, absolutely. So first they can go to FEMA. Gov, F-E-M-A dot gov. And they have an emergency management tab that just has tons of information. And FEMA also has an app. So, you know, for, for both iPhones and Androids, so it can help you, you know, with floods and disaster assistance, lots of great information from FEMA. OSHA.gov, O-S-H-A.gov, go to the search box on the top right-hand corner. You can type in emergency preparedness and response, and they can give you the basic things around, you know, how to create an evacuation plan or the important things to have in a first aid kit. Emergency.cdc.gov, you know, that website has maybe a lot of COVID things, but if you scroll further down, they also have things that are storm-related, hurricane-related, since we're in the hurricane season. Ready.gov backslash kit has a lot of things to your point earlier, Peter, around being prepared at home, you know, water, flashlights and batteries, you know, some of those basic things that when the power goes out, we're sort of scurrying for. And then of course you can go to our website, nsc.org and type in the search box, emergency response, and some tips again for at home or at work templates around emergencies. Fantastic. Well, you've certainly given our audience a lot of great advice to think about as we head into National Preparedness Month. So thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate your time, expertise, and advice. Well, thank you for having me, Peter. You bet. If anyone listening has follow-up questions or just wants to connect with you, what's the best way for them to find you out there? Email address, joanne, J-O-A-N-N dot dankert, D-A-N-K-E-R-T at N-S-C org. Excellent. Well, thanks again for taking time to join us on the Employee Safety Podcast. And for the rest of you out there, remember, nothing ever goes 100% according to plan in an emergency. So communication is incredibly important. If you can't communicate, you can't recover. Until next time. Alert Media is changing the way your leaders and response teams connect and communicate effectively when seconds matter. We provide our customers with a comprehensive solution for monitoring threats around the world and deploying fast, effective emergency communication. You need a panic-proof solution for high-stakes moments. In just a few clicks, your team can send a multi-channel notification to an impacted group of people and confirm their safety immediately. When employee safety is at stake, don't just communicate. Connect and confirm with a robust emergency communication solution. Visit alertmedia.com for more information.
You've been listening to the Employee Safety Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Just tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.